the client is king and I will step all over your toes to make sure that they're happy. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, Closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is Season 3 on Profit. I'm your host, Jordan Muela. And every week, I interview world-class entrepreneurs, operators from within the industry, and people from outside the industry to share insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100 or 10,000 units, this is the show to help you give the tools and tactics to level up. Today, I'm talking with Lisa Wise, the co-founder and president of Nest DC, Roost DC, and now Starling. DC, hard to keep up. Nest manages residential units throughout Washington, DC. It's also a general contractor through Starling, DC. Roost began in 2015 and is one of the only a handful of employee-owned management companies in the country. Uh, I've known Lisa for some time. She spoke at the inaugural PM Grow Summit. She's speaking again at the 2019 PM Grow Summit in April. We're super excited to have her. Lisa, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So Lisa, let's start off here, winding, rewinding the tape. How did you find your way into property management? Uh, well, when I was younger, I grew up in a small town in Idaho and, um, you know, in a community where we didn't have a lot of resources, um, but we all wanted to follow the American dream. So uh, my family lived in a one bedroom house. My parents slept in the dining room. I had the bedroom and my brother slept in the basement. And then we set about expanding on that house and um, going up and going sideways and going back. And I was very um, comfortable living in kind of a construction zone and thinking about how to improve spaces and uh, really enjoyed a hands-on experience with my parents. Um, so I always had that energy growing up and you know I pursued a nice long career in nonprofit management I loved doing mission and values-based work uh, but at, at some point during the recessions we felt like oh, I you know I didn't um, really connect with the dollars I was raising and I was eager to kind of um, you know do a thing and get paid for it and in graduate school I bought a duplex and that duplex really introduced me to the whole world of, of being a manager clearly on a, on a micro scale. Um, but what I did with that tenant and that unit was improve it vastly, not raise the rent significantly, and take great care of my tenant. I gave her a sense of community. I gave her great space. I thought about aesthetics. Uh, and I really liked working on the property. I didn't have any money to pay people to work on the property. It, it, it penciled out that it was cheaper than paying rent to own it, but obviously I didn't have a lot of resources to put into it in grad school. Um, but the tenant paid most of the mortgage. And I thought, oh, this is such a great deal. I don't know why everybody hasn't turned onto this. So um, I picked up a number of properties after that and would manage things sort of as a side hustle for people. And, and when the recession hit in 2009, I thought, you know, this may be the craziest time in the world to start a company. But I think, uh, you know, pursuing this lifelong idea that I had that, you know, taking great care of great property um, attracts great tenants and, and when people have a great living experience then they, and they, they make better neighbors and better neighbors equal better neighborhoods so and better communities so that's exactly what we did and we grew really organically and um, here we are almost a decade later 
So what you just mentioned, better neighbors, better community, did you have that kind of a holistic vision from day one or is that something that emerged over time? That was our set point. Um, it's always been the compass that we've used to you know, engage in business with the best possible intentions. We really want to treat our tenants like clients and customers, to treat our owners like clients and customers, um, to be good neighbors, to make a contribution. Um, that has always been something that is non-negotiable for the company. So being a values-based business, I think in part because of my nonprofit background and probably because of my upbringing, um, we really didn't want to do anything but leave a super positive footprint with the work that we're doing. Uh, so I'm really fascinated by this. Do you think that's also compounded by the urban density as a factor as well? Because I think some folks are going to hear that. It's like, it's like anything. It's like recycling. Like, oh, what is my effort? It's a drop in the bucket. Are you really going to make any kind of a, of an impact? What does that actual impact look like for you? Like what are some of the fruits or the evidence that that kind of a mission and values play is actually having the intended effects? Yeah. Well, to address the first part of your question, an urban environment, I think certainly attracts people who are younger. Obviously I have a, a large millennial staff pool, but we also rent to and work with a lot of millennials as tenants and owners. And I think that generation is really interested in how their, um, their life and work is going to contribute to the bottom line socially, not just financially. Uh, and you see that evidence when you're interviewing and, and making offers that our work as a values-based company and one that does want to contribute is incentivizing for folks. So, um, you know, to give some more concrete examples, we have a philanthropy, a philanthropy program that we launched uh, a number of years ago. Um, and what we do is engage employees and how we want to contribute back to the community throughout the year. So we're not just giving as a company, we're engaging our team members to work together to make those contributions of time and money. Um, we, for example, do an annual casino night fundraiser for um, a federally qualified health center that services people that are lacking health insurance. Uh, many of the people that work on a lot of the houses and things that, that people enjoy in this, in this area. Um, and, you know, our first year we raised $18,000 for that organization. And this most recent year, we've raised almost $60,000 for them. Uh, and those are dollars that they didn't have to earn. We don't ask that organization to help with the organization of the event. Um, we leverage the relationships with our vendors and clients and tenants uh, to come and buy tickets, to sponsor the event, to get some visibility. Um, it's really impactful for that organization, but it's also a great way to bring our team together um, and a really great way for us to build on relationships, not only just with the community, but with the people that we collaborate with. Um, so from the trash company to the engineering companies, to the insurance companies, they all really like knowing that they can participate in that event, get some exposure, but also feel like they're doing a good deed. Um, a year ago, we launched a program called Birdseed because we can't get away from any kind of bird metaphor. Um, and that program is a quarterly giving program where we grant $2,500 to a doer, a maker, or a disruptor in the district. So we have people um, you know, give us one-page applications. That's the, that's the one of two criteria. It has to be three, actually. It can't be longer than one page. Um, because we don't want to read anything longer than one page. It has to happen in the District of Columbia, and it has to be able to happen within three months. Um, and we, uh, make, we, we have a grant program based on that. You don't have to be a nonprofit. Um, it doesn't have to be an elaborate uh, 
project. It can be really simple. So we've done things like sponsor and underwrite um, building murals. Uh, we sponsored a bicycle repair station in a neighborhood that didn't have one, so anybody can go and get their bike tuned up on their own there. Um, we've done education programs and coding for African-American girls who are in high school. Um, we bought a tractor for a veteran farmer. Um, so we've been able to do really cool things that we know make a big difference um, and without being onerous for the people that are receiving those funds. Um, and this year we were excited to be named um, one of the most philanthropic companies uh, in the city for our size range um, in terms of number of hours we donate. So it, it, we could go on and on about it, but it's, it's a pretty exciting part of our work. Um, I think we're really proud of what we do, and I, I do think that you know, what, what we do makes a contribution. Really cool. So what I think is interesting here is we can talk about this in the context of philanthropy, which is interesting, but we can also talk about this on the level of manifesting your values. What you just described can happen on a couple of different levels. That could be approached as a marketing position. I want to make money and therefore I'm going to do these good deeds and tell people about it. Or as a, a guilt trip, it's kind of like a half done, half assed attempt. Whereas in your case, like you're leaning in pretty hard and that sounds like that's it's natural and it works because it really is a deeply ingrained aspect of your culture, not right, wrong, good, bad. For somebody else, they're going to have culture that looks somewhat different. But when the clarity that comes from the culture, the clarity that you had from day one, seems like it's really what's made that more of an organic thing rather than kind of some of the forced efforts that we maybe see from other companies. Fair? That's, that's absolutely right. It's not, you know, let's sponsor the local soccer team because you have to do it because that's what the industry norm is. Or let's, you know, buy... Um, yeah, tickets to a golf tournament or, you know, whatever that is. None of those things are bad. They're all really good. I think for us, it's really just truly part of our identity. Um, and, and, and we believe that identity is a big part of what makes us attractive to our clients. So there's, there's no doubt about it that this is, a, is, you know, very much driven by our good values, but also driven by our interest in making sure people see us and perceive us as, you know, a really stand-up, high value company that they want to work with, or they want to encourage other people to work with. So when you're clear on your own values and you adopt a method of congruency with those values, everything gets easier. Let's lean into some of the other aspects of that. One thing that I've picked up on that I think that's really interesting is design and the visual presence as also being something that you guys care about. That's not common for property management. This would classically be something that could be considered a, an indulgence or a form of waste that from the pattern that you have behind you, from the website that I've seen, from the branding where you you guys have clearly made, unless you're like a brilliant graphic designer, I'm happy, I have to assume you've dropped some cash and made some strategic investment there. Talk me through your thought process on that. There are two sides of it. First, we want to attract a tenant that really cares about their living space. And I think aesthetics are one way of getting people there. So investing more in a website that really gives people um, a feeling of home, um, a feeling of, you know, want or a desire to be in the spaces that they see featured on our website. We do invest heavily in high quality real estate photographers to present properties so that it just looks like, you know, it's the first place you want to rent. Um, we've always done that. It's been a big part of how we present property. I think that's value add for our clients. Um, and I think it does a good job of, of taking the guesswork for our tenants out of 
you know, what they're looking for. So that investment, I think, is a strong one, uh, rather than a few photos that don't really tell the whole story, and then you end up showing the property over and over and over and over and over again. That that cost becomes very high when you have someone out of the office wasting time because they didn't know that the you know one bathroom was off of a master bedroom or something. Um, we also want to let people know that we care about you know what kind of property we present, the quality, condition, and the aesthetics because we want to maintain property at the highest possible standard and we want people to treat property with the highest possible standards and and those tenants stay longer they stay and they're happier um if we if we are not consistent with aesthetics i think in terms of our sort of our, our product which is our rentals um then you have inconsistent landlords you're working with who don't want to maintain their properties and people that don't want to maintain their properties tend to attract people that don't want to take care of those properties and then you start becoming a company that is dealing with more problems than you need to so by establishing a highly curated uh, and very aesthetically pleasing and attractive portfolio i think what we've been able to do is really like cut down on having um that the lost leaders are properties that we don't feel good about representing. And, and aesthetics is a big part of sort of creating parity across the portfolio to know that we have pretty high standards around what we want to manage. And, you know, on the flip side, we want our own spaces to feel like home. So when our teams come to the office and inevitably have to deal with kind of one problem after another, I want them to look around and feel like they're just being embraced by an environment that, you know, where they feel taken care of, where they feel like if, you know, if they got to walk away from their desk, they can go hang out in the lounge space or they can go grab a coffee or they can, you know, um, you know, watch YouTube with their friends. I mean, it doesn't really matter what they're doing, but they need to know that they're in an environment where we really want to make sure that they feel comfortable and that they're enthusiastic about being there um, throughout the day. So, so that's why we make those investments. We also, um, you know, it's, some of those investments are pretty low hanging fruit um, and we don't rent our office space. So whatever investment we make in the office space is truly just equity that we're building long-term. I dig it. So I think those two topics, philanthropy and the commentary where we were just discussing design parlay well into talking about working with millennials. Walk me through how you relate to kind of the ongoing, very loud gripe about millennials. Millennials are, um, in insert pejorative, clearly you're working with millennials. So I'm going to, I'm going to hope that you don't feel that way. I'm going to guess you don't feel that way, but there is kind of this gripe. Is, is that gripe just the same gripe that has, um, that has existed throughout history about every generation judging the previous generation and what do you think is unique about millennials and, and making it work to have meaningful work relationships with that generation? It is a great question. It's a question that's been asked and, and answered a million times and, and yet there's still so much curiosity about how to work effectively with millennials who are now home buyers and parents and bosses and all the things that you know we were dreading. Uh, and I think they're becoming those things pretty successfully. Uh, I think it's fair to be critical of each generation. I don't think that we're particularly fair to the millennial generation. Um, as a really solid workforce that's not necessarily interested in financial gain, but they do want to make a contribution. I think that there's something really outstanding about that. Um, I think they're willing to move quickly if they're not happy where they are. And that's fair because there's, I think, less emphasis on acquiring things and wealth 
uh, I think the, the expectation is that they're not going to have a, a large, um, you know, house or, or huge savings accounts or, you know, I think the retirement conversation is a really different one for them. So I think being more nimble and flexible as individuals and small families is probably the mark of a millennial that we tend to forget, which means that if, if they're not happy, you know, there's no reason to move on, particularly when you have an unemployment rate like the one we've got now. Um, and, and in an area like D.C., when, you know, there's so many great jobs available, keeping them and keeping them happy is paramount. Um, I think that my millennials are, are fantastic. For, and it wasn't until, I think, a year and a half ago that we had anyone on the staff that wasn't millennial, uh, with the exception of me. And, it, you know, you have to, just like you would with any person on your team, you really want to think of them as individuals, you want to make sure that you're setting them up for success. And, you know, if they want to be able to go get coffee four times a day, that's really not a big deal. If they're also willing to check their phone in the evening time and, you know, respond to an emergency issue that maybe they wouldn't necessarily, if you had them held to this sort of nine to five schedule and, and not giving them a lot of latitude. So you have to ask yourself, like, is there you know, what's the cost benefit of creating more flexibility and giving them more meaningful work and, you know, spending more time, you know, giving them feedback that's positive. Like there's really not a lot to lose in, in accommodating a lot of the things that I think millennials are looking for. Um, and, and I think, you know, once you've sort of got that trust and there's like the feeling that there's a lot strong contribution they're able to make, then I think the loyalty is there and I don't think you'll see people leaving and um, it can be a really fruitful relationship. It's interesting that it all does come back to identity. Many of the criticisms of millennials are rooted in identity. Things like, for example, the concept of the Puritan work ethic. You work hard because that's just what we're made to do. And um, the concept of diligence or the concept of being a responsible citizen. That is as much identity as is the idea of wanting impact, meaning, flexibility, travel, etc. So it's really not different in that regard. It's just a, kind of a, a disparate flavor, maybe. That's helpful. I can see what that works for you, given that you have this kind of bigger picture that people feel like they're contributing toward. I would like to lean into talking a little bit about numbers. Can you just give me some rough parameters for what the business looks like? How many units do you manage? What are average rents? What does staff headcount look like? How's the company structured? Sure. We have, um, when you, when we blend the three companies, we like to refer to ourselves as flock. And I just laugh because we can't, we just can't let go of those bird themes. Uh, so we kind of think of ourselves as sister companies in this family of companies uh, under, underneath Flock, which we'll be more formally introducing in this next year. So when we look across the three business units, um, we have about 35 uh, staff members um, that staff everything from the in the field, um, maintenance technicians, painters, plumbers, uh, all the way to external affairs and in-house counsel. So we have a pretty robust um, team that is able to sort of, we have one team, our, our sort of core executive team works in service to all three business units. And then we have people that are generally slotted into each of the individual businesses. So we've got a more traditional property management portfolio manager for Roost. Um, and then we have folks that do leasing exclusively on the Nest side. Um, so that's that's how we've organized our work. And I think it's it's been very effective. Um, between the three businesses, we'll do about five and a half to six million dollars in business. Uh, we enjoy a really nice, uh, in 2019, uh, we enjoy a really nice uh, average rental uh, 
price per month, which is about $2,400 is our average rental price, which means we don't have to aggregate the same volume of properties because they cash flow fairly well. Um, and we manage about 900 units in the district. We also limit our work to the district because we want to limit drive time and travel time for those showings and things like that. Um, we can't do some of the really convenient things like having, you know, lock boxes that people can pop into and, and, and get a one-time code and things like that because we don't manage a lot of single family homes. We manage a lot of units that are in condo buildings. Um, and so, the, you know, that's a, a breach of building security. So there's some limitations there and we really like to have FaceTime with potential tenants and, and clients. So, um, so that's kind of where we stand. Um, we have about 100 buildings that we manage, and um, those range anywhere from sort of three units to 150-unit buildings. So it's a pretty broad um, portfolio, and it's a pretty eclectic, it's a really eclectic team, which is exciting. It's really nice to be able to have a, a plumber on your team who's just as happy and satisfied and rewarded as, you know, your general counsel. It's pretty neat to have them share the same benefits package. Yeah. In-house counsel. Wow. That, that's, uh, that sounds awesome. So the thing that comes to mind is just wondering about what the motivating force was for having these separate business units. Were you solving for addressing the whole customer life cycle, full scope of needs? What led um, starting one business after the other? That's a great question. Nest, I think, was sort of our, our leader, and that grew very organically, and, and then we experimented from there on kind of what our needs were, and, and Roost is an outgrowth of, of Nest's success. So I'm the founder, co-founder of Nest DC, and I bought my business partner out um, a long time ago, seven years ago. Um, and I, I think I hit the point five years ago when I realized that Nest was viable, and when I never really planned for it to be really anything other than something I enjoyed doing. Uh, and then at some point I realized, oh, I can make a living doing this. And, and what a lot of people don't know is that I worked two full-time jobs for a long time and didn't get paid for a really long time. And it was in that fifth year when I was like, oh, wow, it, it's this proof of concept is panning out. Uh, we can make a living. Um, and, I've, and I can do that because I have a really exceptional staff and a, and a loyal staff. And I, I want to see about you know, giving them the same ownership opportunity that I've really enjoyed. Um, which isn't to say that, oh, you know, people say, like, oh, you, earn, uh, you earned what you've, you've created, you took all the risks. And while I appreciate that, that people want to give me a lot of credit for that, I do think it, it was these staff members that you know, put themselves in angry tenants and clients' way every day to make this, this business work. And I wanted to create a business opportunity and ownership opportunity for them. But because I'd had um, you know, just, just the complexity of buying someone out, I didn't want to water nest down. Um, and I wanted to just sort of keep that whole. So we knew that there was an opportunity in building management and those would be totally synergistic business units and, and companies. We were managing a number of properties, built buildings at that point and, and knew that our, our ability to manage in a high density environment was unique. Um, so it was a good time to think about teasing something else out that could be employee owned, uh, and at the same time, uh, grow an aspect of the business in, a, in an area of, of the industry that I think was really underserved. So that became a natural pathway for us to create that employee ownership opportunity and to create a very synergistic brand, um, but also one that wasn't as confusing. It doesn't say that we don't confuse people, but uh, I think that now it's pretty clear that, you know, Roost does buildings, Roost is employee owned, um, and that, you know, 
Bruce manages a lot of the buildings that Nest rents in and vice versa, um, and that there, there's a lot of harmony there. Um, and they're still very connected companies, um, but they are separate entities. You can't really have an employee-owned company that's sort of blended with a non-employee-owned company. So there's some advantages in, in making sure that they were separate. The administrative burden of kind of toggling back and forth is too much. So, and with Starling DC, Starling is a DBA, so you know it's 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 part of Nest, but it's a different business unit. It has its own uh, logo and brand. Um, and one of the things, and that is our licensed general contractor turnover team. So our tagline is um, creating you know resident ready spaces, and and our teams know exactly what to, what to do when they walk into a unit that uh, needs to be you know prepped for you know a really happy key handover where people say, oh, this looks great. Um, it feels fresh, it feels clean, it's safe, everything's working, the full set of keys look great, I'm good to go. Um, light bulbs are all fresh, it's painted, it's, you know, the smoke detectors are working, everything's exactly as it should be. Those, those teams are um, highly trained in knowing exactly what to do. Um, but you, there's a need for that just outside of our portfolio. So the first thing that we want to do, obviously, is have a ready pool of, of of sort of in-house vendors or contractors uh, or technicians that can deliver that work consistently and with the highest possible standards. Um, but we also know there are other industries, the real estate sales market, for, for instance, that is lacking a dedicated and, and reliable pool of, um, of talent that can do the same thing. So we're able to actually make those services available to others. And the Starling DC branding um, eliminates the confusion when we're working outside of our portfolio. So it creates another pathway to profitability um, without just using our internal clients as, as you know, that pool of potential income. So that's why we did that. Plus the, brand, the logo is so adorable. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. All under flock. Yeah. Really, really yeah. cool. I love the organic growth there. Um, yeah. So you mentioned that you have an employee-owned company. How does that work? I, I haven't done that. I'm sure many of our listeners are not familiar. What is different about an employee-owned company and how does it function? Uh, technically, it's a little bit more complicated than you know uh, managing a partnership or a traditional LLC. Um, you know, there are a lot of complexities with regard to how to set up your operating agreements and, and make sure that you're you're both both protecting the company um, and the individual shareholders or members in our case. We, we, did, we did incorporate as a membership uh, LLC so that we can be fairly nimble in terms of bringing new partners in. And there are a lot of different choices that you want to be really thoughtful about if you're going to take that route. A lot of people pursue employee ownership as an ESOP because they're interested in finding an exit path uh, that's logical. So they'll use the, the ESOP to get there. Um, that wasn't my strategy. I, 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 definitely, I definitely don't think of my exit um, throughout the day where I know a lot of entrepreneurs do. <laughs> They're looking for that payday. Um, I'm actually not interested in that being the motive, but certainly sensitive to the fact that I would likely want to sell to the, the to the members if I want to leave the company. So there's an, a value add there. Um, you know, in terms of operating the company, you know, it, it operates just like any other management company would, minus the, the legal um, operating agreement. Um, but I can tell you, just energetically speaking, people like being owners. There's a totally different 
Uh, I think commitment to the work, to the outcome, to the relationships, to each other. When people come to work and say, you know, I'm not just, a sh you know, I don't just buy some shares in the company. Like, I'm an owner. I, I'm part of where we got our start, and I'm part of our future. Uh, and that, I think, is a game changer in the industry, which suffers from a lot of turnover, uh, which experiences, you know, uh, people that are just at low job satisfaction, sort of lack of real connection to what the outcome is going to be, or interest in innovating. We're very interested in making sure that we're doing our best possible work um, with the least amount of effort. And, and that isn't to say that we want to do less for more, but what we want to do is free ourselves up for those meaningful engagements with clients, whether they be tenants or uh, boards of directors. And if we're just doing admin work, then we're not going to get to that. So what we want, we try and be really thoughtful about all of our back of the house systems so that we're really super efficient. Um, and our team will take the time to invest in those efficiencies because they do want us to be able to scale and, and still be uh, best in class in terms of what we do. So I think it's been professionally one of the most rewarding uh, things that I've ever done and certainly one of the things that I'm proudest of. I think financials are probably the worst business decision I could ever make um, because we could have certainly... Uh, just expanded on the Nest brand and built this business, which is, you know, um, I think we'll probably do a million and a half in business in a sh pretty short period of time, which is great. That obviously it could have been, you know, under my my own little family of companies, but that really wasn't my interest. My interest was in creating a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the people in this building, um, and that's what we did. So it was totally worth it, totally worth it. Awesome. Wow. So does, how does that change the hiring conversation? Um, it, it's, you know, it's sort of a perk. I think we have always really focused on what we can do to create a strong, the strongest possible benefits package uh, without being irresponsible. Um, and the idea that we will open ownership up to people that have been here after a certain period of time, I think is really attractive. Mm. So, you know, you, you don't come in and, and automatically get an offer to buy shares in the company or, or become a member of the company. But uh, that's certainly something that after those two years, people are invited to participate. And then, you know, we look at, at all these different factors. So um, I think it's just one piece of what we can do to sweeten the pot. Uh, and for people, I think, that see this as their career and not a job, then I think ownership is, a, is a really enticing. Do you want to network with other grade-A entrepreneurs that are ready to talk more than simple day-to-day -day operations? Are you interested in expanding your business through cutting-edge sales, marketing, and growth strategies? If so, you need to be at the 2019 PM Growth Summit held in April in Austin, Texas. Check it out at pmgrowsummit.com. Learn what the difference is between hope and actual results. It's called taking action. That's what we do collectively at the PM Grow Summit by bringing in world-class speakers, world-class attendees. Get more information at pmgrowsummit.com. Lisa, what were the meaningful inflection points for you within the, the business being not, what, what was the ballpark rough um, revenue estimate that you put out for 2019 ballpark range? Like five and a half to six. Okay. Five and a half to six. So clearly I'm going to assume that there's been multiple inflection points. There's the ones when you're small, there's the ones that are later. What are the ones that really stick out to you that really were challenging um, to work through? Or maybe that were some kind of moments for some real serious introspection? When we had to completely gut and rebuild, 
the way that we handle finances from client finances to corporate finances, I think was super challenging. We had to face some, you know, really hard changes to our infrastructure. We had to, um, you know, look at some internal audits that didn't pencil out in our favor in the way that we had wanted to. I think part of our, our growth, which was great to experience is that we were building on systems that weren't necessarily ready for, um, for that volume. Uh, and for the most part, I think we did a really good job of making sure that from the client perspective, we always took care of them, but we weren't always taking care of ourselves. Uh, so there were a lot of things in terms of internal protocols and efficiencies and um, policies and procedures that we should have done and handled earlier than we did. And certainly became more complicated to untangle as time went on. And I think we've done a really good job, I think in the last 18 months of just revisiting, rethinking and rebuilding every single internal back of the office system that we have, which has been an incredible amount of work, um, emotionally and mentally exhausting, and, and again, totally worth it. So I think we're looking ahead at 2019 with, with just totally streamlined systems that we can trust and build on, rather than working systems that we can maybe build on that we're pretty sure work. <laughs> I think which is a really natural um, trajectory for any entrepreneur. So, and in this business in particular, what works for 50 units does not work for 100, does not work for 500, does not work for 1,000. Um, and when you're really customer service oriented and you want to make sure you're creating a really unique, one-of-a-kind relationship, volume is your enemy, even though volume is what you need to get to mm -hmm. those right. points. So you have to really study yourself and ask, like, are, is our, our clients still having the same great experience? Um, because... I'm not, I can't check in with them anymore. So my role becomes less so um, quality control. I had to pass that on. It's more vision and growth and sustainability and you know where we're going next and sort of those big ticket issues that we want to face and staffing models and things like that. Um, so you know, have you been able to infuse the entire culture with this idea that the client always comes first and you know or is there anybody going rogue in terms about their handling things and that will happen sometimes because you can't check in with 35 people every day so you have to start really making sure that you have a lot of parity among departments and business units and everybody's clear about why we're here and how we do our work um, and there are going to be a lot of bumps around that which is fine i think i'm really comfortable with the bumps but i sometimes they they're a little unexpected or they, they're, they're more mountains than, <laughs> than bumps. But I think that, again, that's pretty normal for where we are. What's been your approach to building internal leadership and what does it look like right now? Do you hand, have a handful of, of folks that are in key leadership positions and how does that function? I do. I have two C-level colleagues uh, and I'm actually moving to a president role. I have a CEO uh, that will, or actually I'll be the CEO, that's what it's going to be. She's going to be the president. Um, she'll be the president across all three business units. Uh, and we created basically a flock leadership team that, that consists of five of us that um, we're, our two vice presidents focus exclusively on their business units. So we have a vice president of uh, Nest and Roost and a vice president, I'm sorry, a vice president of Nest and Starling and then a VP of Roost. Um, they're really focused on operations and execution, uh, delivering on goals, um, and then they report up to the, the three C-level team members, which handle HR, global, global operations, finance, um, you know, strategic planning, and again, the vision piece, uh, reputation management, things like that. So I think that that 
has worked very well. And then that crescendos down to our director levels who run different teams. So whether it's, you know, our leasing team, our finance team, um, our tech team, our turnover team. So we have all of these different, different teams that manage different points of the client experience to make sure that they go really well. Uh, and so the idea is that, you know, we want to create a lot of growth opportunity for the teams that are here. And so there's a lot of you know, clarity, I think, around what it means to start as an assistant and then potentially be the, you know, the, the CEO or president of the company one day, because we, that has been um, the path that both of my senior, most senior members have um, taken, which has been awesome. So. Did you ever struggle with impulses around things like they'll never do as good of a job as I can do? Or was that a natural really transition for you to always? Well, I, still do, I still do that. <laughs> um, I, I am less likely to do that on execution or systems. I will. And I was talking to a staff member today because I, I like to meet periodically as often as I can with different people and just check in with them. And, you know, I, I said, you know, I'm not a micromanager almost to a fault, but if I see anything going south with a client, I will jump over the bridge for them. <laughs> so the client is king and I will step all over your toes to make sure that they're happy uh, and don't take it personally. But, you know, there's some times when the finesse of the owner is the only thing that's going to save a situation. Um, and, and again, if it's client-based, I'm going to just jump in front of the bus uh, to make sure that we can save that that it, that issue or or whatever it is, I think for the most part, you know, other things. I think the the clarity of roles is getting um, more and more pronounced, which is awesome. We spent a lot of time. We worked with an executive coach this year to make sure that we had uh, among the C suite and our senior level people a lot of clarity around who's doing what and why and to what end and where we want to go as a flock and what that means to us. And I think it's just been a really good um, year of planning and we're super poised to, to kind of take on a whole new um, push for growth in the next year. So I know this is a little bit in the weeds, but I'd love to hear a little bit about the flow of information and reporting and meeting cadence. We're adopting something internally called EOS, which is just like a management structure for how to run a company. A million ways to do it, but specifically EOS involves meetings that take place in a certain K on a certain cadence, a uh, scorecard that is reviewed by the team. How do you push all that key data and conversation around in a way that is enough, but not too much? Yeah, I know. Because what you don't want to do is manage meetings. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's not exactly what you want to be doing in the management business, right? Um, you know, that is always something I think will keep fine-tuning and finessing. But right now I have... With my senior team, I have one-on-one -on -one check ins every week individually with my C-level, every two weeks with my B-level. Um, the Flock 5, which is what we call ourselves, meet every two weeks. The C-level meets every week. I meet with our attorney once a week um, just to make sure that we're checking in. And then I get written reports back from all of those folks as well, which are pretty um, light in nature. They're not intended to be verbose, but here's the stand, you know, sort of the status of things that are in motion. Um, and all of those things roll up into our individual um, flight plans, which are, are basically our work plans. Um, and that, because we, again, we cannot let it go. Um, never let go of your brand, one brand. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think that there's a lot of clarity around that. But it's really easy to slip into 
focusing on the problem of the day and not being clear during your meeting. So we've, we've gotten good at having set agendas ahead of time, which helps a lot. So we know we get through what we need to get through and you don't end up sort of going down some rabbit hole of frustration um, when you're not going to even remember that what that was a few weeks down the road. Um, so that's the, that's the, those are the, the sort of the meeting path and pattern that we have for the moment. Uh, and then we meet as a company once a month and then we have quarterly retreats um, with the, with the full flock um, and, and kind of do some team building and some goal planning. And we, we always have themes for those. Um, sometimes they're customer service focused or problem solving or they're technical, um, but it's a great time for the whole team to come together. We also have two locations now, which is tricky for us. So we have to be really deliberate about how we're spending our time together because we're not just going to bump into each other all the time. Mm-hmm. Got it. So in terms of your impact and your role, how would you describe your unique ability when you're working at your best? What are the sorts of things you're doing? What does that look like? I think when I'm doing my best work, I'm, I'm engaging thoughtfully and meaningfully with my team members, whether that be the receptionist or the person who's reviewing our contracts, uh, caring about their outcome, making sure that they have what they need to, to succeed. I think that helps them really buy into what we're doing as a company now and, and what we'll be doing later. Um, so being inspirational, helping us all look Toward the future and what that means for us, how we're going to make a difference as a, as a community um, for our community. I think being a flock family is that branding, that that constant push. I mean, this year we doubled our uh, office space, and I think you know that was a big lift for us as a company. But it was also this sort of this huge moment for us to say we're poised for that growth, and I, it's the it's, that's the role I play in saying, okay, this is the next big move that we're going to make. Um, and so at that, I think people look to me to set the pace for things like that. Um, and, you know, on the flip side, I'll spend time making sure, you know, a, a lot of our clients are getting the attention that they need so that there's a certain degree in the startup phases of, of both Starling and Roost. We're still in a space where I spend a lot of time on client work, um, less so on the Nest side and the day-to-day client aspect because that is now a much more mature company. Um, so there will still be times when I will, you know, get on a roof or check out a pointing project or figure out why they have an oil tank that nobody knew that they had before. And, and a lot of the nitty gritty that goes with managing the spaces that we manage, which I really like. So uh, that's not a bad thing at all. Did the idea of becoming a, of being a visionary come naturally to you? It must, because that seems to be where I land all the time. So I, I don't really think of myself that way. I think of my obligation as creating opportunity. Um, and, and I think creating opportunity and, and, and helping people realize goals that they may not have even known they had is what I want to do. So it's less vision for me, and it's more creating opportunity. Um, so. Probably similar, a similar outcome. I mean, the word visionary, it, it, it certainly sounds like it, maybe it's gotten a dirty word from Silicon Valley and, and <laughs> <laughs> but whatever you, whatever you want to call it, somebody has to have an idea and make a decision in their brain that has no factual basis in reality. You just say something, we are going to do this. This is going to happen. How do you know? I don't know. I've just decided that's what we're going to do. That's kind yeah. of the essence of, of that lead role. I know for me, it's definitely take, there was a point where I just had to accept that the visionary may not always have this clear task list of, 
the, the type of work looks very different than other roles. It's not in some ways as gratifying as production level work where you can say, hey, here's this end state thing that I produced and yet it's, it's critical to do. So one of the things I always ask guests towards the end of the show, and I'll just ask you now is whether or not you feel that an entrepreneur is born or bred, what contributed to you being able to step into this role of being an entrepreneur? Was that modeled at any point in your life? Any key mentors? No, it wasn't modeled. Um, you know, I didn't even take a business class. So I, you know, I have a master's degree, which is great, but it, it, it doesn't relate in any way to what I do now. Um, I don't uh, and have not really had a strong community of fellow business owners. I think I do now because I am part of some networks that are really designed for that. Um, but I was never around anybody in the business world ever. Um, it just came super naturally to me. So I, I cannot, turn my brain off from thinking, wouldn't it be great if we had, you know, cardboard collection programs where you break down your Amazon box and we'll resell. Like, I'm always thinking of something we could do to, you know, fill a gap. Um, and so I think for me, it was just that it was born that way. Um, it, I've had so many side hustles. Um, I, I think, you know, since I was little, like I, always, I always wanted to be in business. I used to dream of what my home office would look like. <laughs> when I was little, I would dream of like what my office would look like. That's not normal. Like most kids are thinking about weddings or prom or I don't know, their first car or something. I'm like, what kind of desk would I want? And what I want? Like, what kind of a chair would I want? What about bookcases? I mean, it's that I was really motivated by work and like a workplace and business and sort of all those things. So, um, you know, when I was in, <laughs> I lived in Idaho, I was in Girl Scouts. And, and I lived in a town of like 1,800 people, and I sold over 2,000 boxes of Girl Scout cookies. Wow. <laughs> it's like wow. more than one box per person, right? Yeah. And I wasn't even into Girl Scouts. I liked the idea of selling the cookies. Like, I was the only kid in Girl Scouts to sell the cookies because I could get, like, a credit to go to Girl Scout camp and things like that. So it was, like, really motivated to sort of find great ways to sell these cookies. That was before your mom sold all the cookies for you online. So <laughs> you actually did have to go door to door with the little thing you fill out. And um, it was, yeah, we lived in that one bedroom house when all the, those cookie orders came in. It was pretty overwhelming to have them in the living room. But I think I just kind of came out that way. Uh, and I think, you know, over time, I, I think this is a, a really, I think this is kind of the era of the entrepreneur when, where it's, being an entrepreneur is honored and revered and people are, you know, interested in that. And I think it seems more viable and possible than it really ever has before um, because technology makes that available. Um, and I think some people can absolutely pursue an entrepreneurial life without being born that way. Um, I think I just came out that way. What would your advice be to a millennial that has seen that dream and is excited by it? You know, they're listening to Gary Vee's podcast, whatever it may be, but they haven't quite made that jump. Would you have any parting words of advice or wisdom for somebody in that scenario? Follow your passion. If you love the work, then people will kind of come. So I, I, I didn't get really caught up on the details of how to run a business. I just let it unfold. Um, and I think that's clearly what led to some things that needed to be cleaned up long-term, but it kept me from being snagged on things that I didn't understand as well. Um, and, and that's probably really bad advice, but it's the advice that's going to 
encourage people to just continue on a path that feels right to them. Um, because a lot of the people will sort of say, oh, think about this or think about that. And those might be things that are discouraging. Um, but if you know you're doing something that you love and that feels viable to you, then keep plowing through it and follow that dream. And all the details will, will solve themselves at some point. Mm, yeah, I hear you. I think that's part of the entrepreneurial creed is to not let how get in the way too much. How are we going to do it? I don't know. Not sure. Let's not sure. just start. Yeah, yeah, let's just start. We can start. We can definitely do that. No, I mean, nobody else is doing it well, right? So why can't we do it well? <laughs> I mean, that seems to be my approach to all things, right? And, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I mean, we've had different business, um, you know, units and, and things that we've launched that were just on paper, these beautiful concepts and just in practice sucked. They were terrible. They were just sucking the life out of the team. And I was like, okay, we don't have to do that anymore. So it's okay to experiment, retool, pivot, and then move on to the thing that, you know, actually has some traction. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, for me, I'm not a risk taker. Um, I think a lot of people would assume that I am, but, but if you think about it, this is a service-based business. It costs us $193 a month when we started the company to keep it running. Like that's pretty low risk. It was my time. Uh, it was me knocking on doors. It was me telling everybody that we were the best property management company in the city, even though we had three properties and, and believing it because I believed that we had the best model um, and people jumped on board and they're like, okay, well that sounds good. I haven't seen anybody else with property management company have any passion. So this has to be better. Um, so I think, you know, if you have your time to sell, think, think through that. Like what is a, if, if you're, if, if you're raising money and you're going to throw it all on the line, like that, that's really not my thing. But if it's a service-based business in particular, like there's really nothing you can lose except your time. Um, so I say, just go for it. Well, this interview really highlights the power of the why, getting clear on your core values, your vision, and doing so as an extension of meaning in life, not just because you read a book and it's a hack to um, get to the next level. I mean, it's hard to fully... That, that's like seven other podcasts. But what I do know is that you're going to be with us in April at PM Grow. I'm super excited about that. I'm honored to have you out. Could you share for the audience what your uh, experience was like at the, the first PM Grow Summit? Yeah, it was exceptional. It was, I think it was the, the best um, and most highly engaged um, audience that I've worked with. And I think you guys did a really good job of curating content that went well above um, you know, anything that you'll see at a lot of the association conferences. So it was nice to see uh, fellow entrepreneurs put on a conference rather than, um, hmm. you know, the director of education from association XYZ. It's sure. a different dynamic. So I think, you know, people, uh, I think we obviously you're in your role because you see this industry growing and have an exceptional opportunity. That's new to the industry, I think, to use that tone and approach. And it's nice to be among people that have the entrepreneurial spirit and see this as, as having a super strong future rather than complaining about how to do eviction, <laughs> which mm. is not very fun <laughs> uh, as, a, as a workshop title. It's not my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Love it. Hey, that's really helpful. So excited to have you out. Thanks again for coming on the show. Look forward to seeing you in April. Thank you. Bye-bye.